Welcome to Compassion in a T-Shirt and our short shares with Professor Paul Gilbert. In episode three, he gets down to business with what is compassion? And his answer is both elegant simplicity and the mystery of a deep sea. Certainly in the uh, second edition, we're starting to talk about compassion, not in any great way. Um, we talk about it a little bit in the 89 book, but I don't think it's landed as, actually, this is a central concept. We kind of thought what compassion was about. We, we wrote a little bit about it, but we didn't really, we were more thinking in terms of helpfulness and caring. You know, we talked a lot about the caring system. You know, in the 89 book, there's a whole series of chapters about caring. So it was all about caring, caring, caring. But then we got, began to realize that actually compassion was a little bit different to caring. Um, because, for example, you can care for your garden and uh, if your garden gets flooded, you get upset about that. But you don't have compassion because it doesn't have any, it doesn't have a mind. You, know? you only have compassion for uh, individuals who can suffer, who have minds, who have conscious awareness. And if your car gets damaged, you'd be upset about it. You'd, you'll look after it, you take it to the garage, but you won't feel sad for it or feel sad for you, but not for the car. So that's, so we began to become aware of that compassion and caring caring obviously was very important but compassion actually had this other domain layer which is all about the way in which we think about things and so forth and at the same time i was reading more and more in the buddhist literature because i had been very much into it in the 60s and the late 60s and 70s at university because that was all with the beatles that was maharishi and back you know um, <laughs> you remember that those days of transcendental meditation. So I used, to, I used to like to go to these meetings and do me transcendental meditations, but I always had this interest um, in this stuff, and um, and then so uh, I became much more interested in it again, revisiting it again, and starting. Oh my gosh, there's a whole real Aladdin's cave here of ideas, which I sort of was aware about, but didn't really. I sort of vaguely aware about and started then in the 90s to and the 20s to begin to really study it and look at it in more detail. But um, maybe this is the thing. Mm. This is much more an intentional awareness process mm. as opposed to automatic caring. You know, animals automatically care for their um, offspring and everything, but they don't have compassion because it's not a knowing awareness of what they're doing. And in, as you know, in, in the mindfulness stuff and the Buddhist stuff, knowing awareness is is the is the game really. Knowing, understanding, being aware of what's happening as it's happening. So that was it. So for my my second question, I guess, which really then kind of extends from 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 just where you got to there, you know, is is, is the kind of the the big one. You know, like well, how would you then define? compassion but but including that notion that that it, it is a kind of an evolved motive and that bit about it that there's an there's an algorithm uh, you know and and what that kind of really means for you yeah that so this is grash again because you know you've been part of the journey stance so you've seen it all and contributed to it all um you know we're refining and developing and stuff like that so when we first started talking compassion, we had a more general sort of view and took it from the literature, you know, you have to have a bit of this and a bit of empathy and a bit of that. But um, because my background has always been very much biological and also because of my behavioral background from my Sussex days, I was always very interested in the concept of an algorithm. Now an algorithm 
is the basic process for any system. So your air conditioning works on an algorithm of turn on if it's the heat temperature goes up, turn off if it goes down. All you need is a feature detector that's linked to an action system. That is an algorithm. A feature detector, a feature detector linked to a, a action system. So <clears throat> you can have feature detectors for a threat, and then the action system is you stimulates your amygdala and you kind of become alert, you want to run away. You can have a feature detector for sex. <laughs> you see something a bit naughty that stimulates your body, you prepare for action, you can have a feature. So feature detectors are very, very important and they link into action systems. So that's an algorithm, if A, then do B. That's, that's the basis of an algorithm. And we can begin to explore those algorithms in terms of the physiological basis. So we know how the algorithms for threat work mostly. We know the amygdala is very important, for example, that if you get damage to your amygdala, then you don't respond to threat cues. You just don't, you know. So we could then follow this up because in, with the mammal mammalian evolution, then the parent had to be sensitive to the needs and distress of the infant. Needs were very important and distress because if they didn't, obviously then the infant died. So mammalian caring, the algorithm for mammalian caring was sensitivity to distress and need and then do something about it and also prevent suffering, you know. Now, Chodin and I in 2013, when we were writing the book, Mindful Compassion, we suddenly realized that actually the word concept of prevention isn't in any definition, but it's implicit, but it's not there. So we stuck it into our definition because we think the concept of awareness of need and the prevention of suffering is such an important concept. So that then became the algorithm. The algorithm is, what is the stimulus? The stimulus is some sensitivity to need that without that need that person will suffer or a direct experience of suffering that would be your a that's your feature detector you have to have a feature detector and we now know that these feature detectors people vary in them some people are very uh, sensitive to suffering and distress in other people some people not so much um, there's been recent work out on the oxidation gene oxytocin gene and, and variations on that gene seems to make some people a little bit more sensitive than others. And then you've got the second, which is the response function, which is, so what do you do? And then for both of those, your ability to have thinking and planning and reasoning mindfulness that helps you in deciding what is going to be helpful. So it's difficult if, you don't, if you're not empathic, for example, to work out what's likely to be helpful. Um, so you, you, when it comes to uh, being compassionate and you have to be uh, sensitive to signals of distress, you have to be able to understand them, you have to be able to mentalize and make some sense of what's going on for that person. And then the second response function is to work out what to do. Now, you and I have talked about this a little bit, you know, people talk about compassion fatigue and so on. Most of the evidence suggests that that isn't actually, you don't get compassion fatigue, get burnout. And one of the reasons you get burnout is because you get stuck in the first psychology, you get stuck, you're overwhelmed with the suffering and the pain. But the action system doesn't seem, won't take you anywhere, either because you don't know what to do, or there's nothing you can do, or for whatever reason. And then that's the bit when you start to feel hopeless, there's no, I can't do it, it's too much, I can't, I'm overwhelmed by it. And then that's, that's the problem. But your desire to be helpful, that doesn't go away. Um, but you just get exhausted, you don't think, you, you just don't want to do it anymore.
So we have the the, the feature detector and and the action, the, the sort of and, and really that's sort of the stimulus and the response in a sense. That's it. That's um, it. Yeah. And and you would equate those to first psychology and second psychology, or is there? Yeah, we used to do that. That's correct. Um, I mean, again, it's all part of the process of change, and now we call them engagement and action. So they okay. can be the, 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 the psychology of engagement. I think we had talked about this a little bit when we were together some years ago and over a beer or something. Because you're very into motivational interviewing and yeah. you've been terrific in contributing in that way. Um, but the whole process of rather than first sex psychology, and then we had skills and attributes that worked for a while. Yeah. So the, what we're trying to do is always uh, move, like, you know, move the science. Yes. So engagement, the psychology of engagement, what do you need in order to be able to engage? We need to be sensitive. You need to be able to be moved. You need to be tolerant because if you get overwhelmed by the stress, you run away. You need to be empathic to that distress so you can make sense of what's going on. And you need to meet non-judgment. So we, we've identified, as you know, these qualities that you train people, these six qualities for engagement. You'll be able to engage with suffering. And then the qualities of action. So but once you've understood the nature of suffering, then you have to start to think about, okay, so what, what's going to help here? It's like going to a hospital with a broken leg, you know, people are sensitive to your pain and so on. But basically, they don't want to just say, oh, God, you look like you're in terrible pain. You want to start doing something. So that action component then becomes how we, it's called discernment in, um, mm. in thinking, how we then think about, so what is, what do I need to do now? What is going to be helpful? That is the, the tricky one, isn't it, in a way? Well, I mean, they're both tricky in their own way because to be sensitive to suffering means to be in the presence of suffering and, and to feel it a bit too, you know. So there's the distress tolerance piece that yeah. can be important there. And so, that, you know, that's, that's, that's one thing. But, but the action piece, you know, what, what really is most helpful? You know, sometimes, like when I work clinically, people might talk about sort of saying to themselves, you know, you'll be okay or something like that, a, a sort of a reassurance, which is, is cool. And, you know, but, but the, the sort of the, the nuance of action is, is often the, the tricky one to, to really work out and, and to think what is going to be most helpful here. Yeah, I mean, you put, your, you put your finger straight on the button because that's absolutely right. And as you know, we say, you know, compassion is not one thing. You no. know, if you're a firefighter, uh, you're not going into that burning house in a calm mind, you know, here I am, stable mind. You're having to maintain your fear to pursue your intention. Okay, so compassion mind isn't about being, you know, in a calm state necessarily. It's being able to be in control of your mind if you're very frightened, but you can still do what is helpful. So that that's that's very very important. But it's, it's a very different mind than if you're doing psychotherapy and you're working with a bereaved person. You don't need you know to be courageous. You need to be able to regulate different emotions in different ways. So this is a very important question you're asking because, because compassion is very contextual. What do you need to be able to do or what it, it really does depend on the context. Some people, you know, in some cases, you might need to risk your own life to save somebody. In other cases, absolutely, it's completely different. So this is very, very important. And uh, helping clients understand what it is that would help them. And very often they start off by saying, I don't know. And you say, exactly that's why you're here 
So that's what we have to work out about what's likely to be helpful to you. And then we start a journey of how do you discover what's helpful? How would you know what's helpful? How, what behavioral experiments can we do? And blah, blah, blah. Would you have a go at this and see if it's helpful? Have a go at that and see if it's helpful. So then we start to engage in this whole, the point that you're making, which is very important, of people working out what's helpful. And what you, you've noticed and we've noticed is that, of course, people often start off with what should be helpful. What should be helpful? You know, so if you get them to have a sort of compassionate thoughts, they try to think, okay, so I can think this and that should help me. Does it? No. <laughs> so that's no good, that is it really? Um, so, you know, when they're doing compassionate images, they try to create images that they think would be, that should be a compassionate image, uh, but actually doesn't do anything. So what you're looking for when you're doing stuff is also how it moves the body because we're very body focused because if it doesn't move the body then we get a little bit suspicious but it's a little bit we always say this is a bit like sex right now you can have as many images as you like uh, but if it doesn't actually do anything in your body you're not actually that interested in them you can have images that you think should make you aroused but they might not in which case they're no use to you so Finding the ones that actually, you can only do this by carefully monitoring image and body, image and body, but it's the same when we're doing compassion. What's happening in your body? If it's all heady, that's not so good. Now we've just finished a big study. Well, it's not actually a big study. It's, it didn't have a lot of people, but uh, on uh, bipolar with a bipolar group. And they're very interesting because we, for all kinds of reasons, a bit complicated, it was an extended, um, training with lots of blocks and breakups partly because of COVID mm. but that has given us an opportunity we've had a number of focus groups at different stages of the therapy and it's very clear that there is a process of change that requires time so the, in the first days the clients are saying yeah I get it yeah blah blah blah, blah. but it's very very heady mm. and then as you move through they're saying I'm getting it but actually I think it's starting to make me feel worse you know because I'm beginning to engage my pain, I'm beginning to see things in a different way, and I'm beginning to realize this, and I'm beginning to realize that. So you get this sort of slipping down. And then in the third stage, which was around the, at the 36 week, where clients say, ah, oh, this has just been revelatory. It's just changed me. I just see myself and the world, my relationship to my condition completely differently. So the, the transitional process is non-linear. Change is not linear. It, your ups and downs, as people develop compassion, what you often find is that they now are going to start to engage with stuff like they start to do the grieving. Uh, so that's often quite an important, you strengthen them up a little bit and now they're ready for the journey, but the journey is tough. So they, and then through that process of working through the toughness of the journey, that transforms them, then they internalize it, then it becomes much more body-based so they can feel it as opposed to just thinking. Would, would you call that embodiment in the end? Is, is that? Yes, 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 yes. It's a great question, interceptive and all that. No, absolutely right, yeah. And so then you, you also speak about wisdom, strength and courage, caring commitment, that, that, that often appears outside the, the, the circles of the model in a sense. And, and um, so what, what, how do they sort of fit into all of that in your mind? Well, yes, I think, again, a lot of the stuff actually is very implicit within the Buddhist literature as well. We think courage is very, very important. And I, I read a really wonderful book by Stanley Rackman, who actually was at Sussex in the 70s when I was there, great guy. 
uh, he was a very strong behaviorist who wrote a book called Fear and Courage. You, you, I think mm. you may know this book. I think it was published in 1990, or it might have been published before that. And um, basically, Stanley's point was as a behaviorist, you know, that the key thing you're developing in your class is courage because you're doing exposure, you're exposing them to the things they're frightened of. What do you need in order to do that? Courage. And he wrote some wonderful things about that, you know, we, we should be talking much more about the courage of, of developing the courage of our clients. That's what we're doing. We're, you're not just developing skills, you're developing client courage. And he gave some amazing examples about, you know, how people will sacrifice themselves to save others using, uh, I remember he talked quite a lot, because I was interested in that, he talked quite a lot about um, the RAF, the RAF, you know, when people were going on their bombing things and everything. Uh, knowing that a third of them would never come back. You know, many people in war situations risk themselves knowing that the chances of being injured is quite high. So how can people do that on one hand and yet be agoraphobic on the other, right? Mm -hmm. So these are really, really important issues in terms of how we help people work with and building courage, I think. Uh, after reading Stanley, uh, Stanley um, not Stanley, um, Rackman's book um, became really quite an interesting process, but I hadn't really written very much about it. And then gradually, gradually it dawned on me because I'm a bit slow with these things that actually, of course, if you're going to engage with suffering, you know, which is what all therapies do, all therapies engage with suffering, that's what they do, you know, but um, then what we're doing is we're building people's courage. Now, how do you do that? Ah, well, now then, if you have a compassion motivational system, because that motivational system is working through um, the vagus nerve and all that stuff, that's what gives you the basis of courage now, because you've got internal systems that will help you. And that is linked to the attachment stuff, right? So, you know, you know, with it in the attachment system, the parent provides a secure base and safe haven to be able to face the world. You know, face the world. So that's what you do. You create within yourself not ways of not feeling frightened, but ways of being able to work with feeling frightened. You're not frightened of being frightened, you can tolerate it, you can work it, you will maintain your intention in spite of fear. So that, I think in a, in a sense, that's always, always been the central issue of behavioral approach to anxieties and that sort of thing. But if you, but what they don't do is they don't bring in the second threat regulation system, which we call the social safeness system, which is rooted in this, the vagus oxytocin links. Mm. So there you have the mystery of the deep sea, sea for compassion. In episode four, Paul moves from we are born with tricky brains to we are shaped by experiences and the role of our early life in both our suffering and the compassion we may bring to it.